Well, good morning. Welcome to Theological Equipping. Everybody's getting ready, chugging uh, watered down Folgers. I uh, hope it helps. Uh, I am, my name's Tim Hollis, and I'm one of the ministers here, if it's your first time. Um, if it's not your first time, me, me and Carl are taking over today. Carl's going to be preaching in there. I'm teaching in here. And Zach and Jeff are like, they're like sipping lemonade in the back, not doing anything, which is great. So I'm happy to be here. We're going to be finishing up today. We've been talking for the past four weeks here about uh, God's attributes, trying to answer the question of what God is like. Uh, and so we started out talking about God's incommunicable attributes, which are those attributes that are not shared, that we cannot really have in common with God. And then Carl started us off uh, last week on the communicable attributes of God. Uh, and today we will finish that. Uh, if you are all attributed out, attributed out, we'll be done with it this week. So this is your salvation. Tomorrow, or uh, next week, we'll be talking about God as creator, which is actually still kind of an attribute. So it's okay. We're getting through it. Uh, today, we're talking about God's goodness, his love, his glory, his freedom, and perfection. And so I, before we get started, I want to talk about brisket, because I love brisket, and it's a good way to wake up, okay? And as people, I'm sure for the next 30 minutes, people will continue to come in, because that's just how we roll here at Parkway. But brisket, I love brisket. Who, raise your hand if you love brisket. Wow, praise the Lord, amen. <laughs> the youth have already heard me kind of explain this analogy. So, a lot of people, when they hear the word brisket, and some of you might have raised your hands because of peer pressure, I understand. Statistically, you know, you're like, oh, I guess I do too. But most of us, what we've experienced that's called brisket is this weird, dry, cold, flavorless, tough, uh, you need to drown it in barbecue sauce to make it worth anything, uh, kind of meat that's served at like catered events and weird family reunions. That's what most people have experienced as brisket. And it's not good. Uh, it's not good at all. And so you may be thinking, if you're one of those people that raised your hand out of peer pressure, you may be thinking, how could anyone love brisket? I grew up thinking that when people said, oh, I really like brisket. Or when I would go to a catered event and there were all these trays full of brisket, I thought, who is the, does someone have a demon? Why do they want this? What, what is the, who is the person that's like, you know what I want? This disgusting, flavorless stuff that, like, you pray for a Hawaiian, one of those Hawaiian rolls just to wrap around it to make it taste good. Who is the person that's ordering these things? And the, the reason uh, that was difficult for me, uh, and probably it may be difficult for some of you when I say I love brisket, is because that's, that's all you know. That's what you understand of brisket. But one day, uh, recently, a few years ago, a buddy of mine said, hey, I want to take you to this restaurant. It's a great barbecue place in Houston, uh, and they have incredible brisket. You have to try it. I thought, brisket's gross. Why do I want to try that? But I went anyways. He was like, order the brisket. I was like, I'll have, like, sausage, something safe, which is, that shows the level of uh, distrust I have with brisket, that I would say sausage, sausage is safe, because who knows what's in there? Uh, <laughs> And so he orders the brisket, and I'm looking at what comes out on this glorious platter, 
and it is not dry and cold and gross and tough looking. It's really like juicy. It's like glistening. Uh, that's from the fat, but you don't talk about that. It's just glistening and beautiful. It smells amazing. It pulls apart easily with a fork. I try it. It's like melting in my mouth. And I thought, is this, is this what brisket is? Is this what all these other people have been trying to resemble and have failed miserably? Because this is glorious. This is brisket. There's a few places in town. So if you're one of these people that says, I don't like brisket, there's a few places in town. Uh, one, actually, <laughs> called Hutchins. They're great. Go try their brisket. Get it fatty. Don't get it lean, okay? Be American. Get it fatty. <clears throat> uh, sometimes they're inconsistent, though, so I'll just give you that disclaimer. But I love them, but they can be inconsistent. Uh, I say all of this because with a lot of these words that are really familiar to us, that are really common to us, we may be using the same word, saying uh, brisket. We're thinking, some people are saying, that stuff is great. And others are saying, that's not great. And what, what it really is, is who has a true and right understanding of the word. That'll determine how we relate to that word. So if you have a, a cultural understanding of goodness, and then I tell you that God is good, well, he won't be uh, as incredible, he won't be as supreme to you as if you had a biblical definition of goodness. You understand them in a biblical way. Does that make sense? So some would say brisket is gross, but what you've experienced is far less than all that brisket was meant to be. Uh, and so most of these words, these are like coffee mug words. These are the words that they print all over frames at Hobby Lobby, which I don't know why they do that, but it has love and goodness and freedom. That's with the one with the American flag. <clears throat> uh, Sometimes with these words that are so familiar, we can just confuse familiarity with understanding. We confuse familiarity with accuracy. The question you need to ask yourself this morning, and what we will be asking ourselves, is, is my understanding of love as rich as the Bible describes it? Is my understanding of God's goodness as rich as he is revealed in his word? Or am I believing something about God's love that, that makes me think that I bring something to the table? And when I don't bring whatever my goodness is to the table, that he loves me less. Do we have this cultural understanding of love that distorts a proper and right view of what love is? Do we think that there are aspects of God that we'd like to change? Are there parts of him that we're offended by, embarrassed by? Do we not actually believe that he's perfect? That there's no blemish found within him? So, this is what we're gonna be talking about today. In, in high school, let me give another example. In high school, I drove a beautiful 1969 Chevelle. Uh, and it was, man, I love that car. I got five miles to the gallon. But back then, gal uh, gas was super cheap. And so I, that, that didn't even matter to me. Uh, it was really fast. I think in my first two years of driving, I got six tickets. So, speeding tickets. So that shows you a little bit about my character in high school. Um, I kind of built the car from the ground up uh, when I was 14, I knew everything about the car from the manuals, and people would help me, uh, my cousins helped me, friends of the family would come help me. Here's a basic thing no one ever told me, and no manual ever mentioned. When you have a car, you have to get the oil changed. I could tell you everything about where the oil is held, how it gets passed through the engine, and how it gets back to where it was. I knew all of that. But I just thought, I had this one small little mishap in my understanding. I thought that once oil's in there, it's great, and it'll last forever, and it's perfect. And so about seven months after driving my car, 
On my way to my high school one day, my engine cracked in half. It stalled up and literally cracked in half and exploded. The whole front of my hood was, was crazy. And I had to buy a new engine. But my point is, we may be extremely familiar with all these things. We may know these Oh, yeah, I understand. Of course God is loving. Yeah, God is love. That's what my bumper sticker says. Of course, of course he's perfect. He's God. But if we don't actually renew our minds and study what the biblical understanding of these words is, if we have one small little mishap, it can be tragic. If you have a small misunderstanding about what God's love is like, you end up writing books like Love Wins, or you think that all roads lead to God. That's just a small misunderstanding. You may understand all of the Greek grammar. You may understand all of that. But that doesn't mean that you, need, that you don't need to continually renew your mind. So when we come in here this morning, I want us to remember that uh, we don't ever, it's not like we've got these. We need to approach all of this with humility. We need to approach our study of God's goodness, his love, his glory, freedom, and perfection with humility. All of these attributes, we need to come to it saying, I will never fully grasp all that God is. I will never fully grasp it. Uh, but our minds still need to be continually renewed. We need to continue to center our understanding of who God is on how he has revealed himself in his word. Otherwise, we drift. And even a small drift can be tragic. Okay? So if you've never considered God, any of these, you've never considered God's goodness or glory or perfection, this will be new and that'll be super great. That'll be awesome. But if you have, and especially if you had a lot, I want, I want your heart to be aware of places you may be comfortable. You may think, oh, I've, I understand this. Because those are the places where the enemy can build a foothold. We just need to be aware and be humble as we approach uh, the character and the attributes of God. All right? Are we ready? Goodness. Goodness. What on earth is goodness? We tend to think of goodness as whatever the right thing is or something being better than something else. Uh, we essentially think of goodness as whatever is worthy of our approval. Whatever is worthy of our approval. That's, that's what we think of goodness. Uh, so just like I said, good brisket is good. Why? Because it's better than the family reunion meat. That's gross. That's why it's good. And in a moral sense, someone who does more approved things than disapproved things, we say is good. So we as humans have created, we have laws, and a person that does all of these approved things that are laid out in statutes, well, they're good. But the person that does more of the bad things, breaks the law more, that person is, is bad. He's evil. That's kind of how we tend to think of it. And I think we think of ourselves as, well, yes, of course, I sin every now and then, but overall, I mean, at least I have a, a 71. At least I'm passing. I'm pretty good for the most part. I do sin, but I'm not a sinner. I'm, I'm pretty good. That's how we tend to think of ourselves. Our, our culture has been really influenced by a guy named Carl Rogers. Anybody heard of this guy? Uh, in the 1950s, he's a psychologist writing. He's, been heavily, he's heavily influenced counseling and counseling theory. So if you've ever seen a Christian counselor or a secular counselor, if you've ever gone and talked to any of these people, uh, they have probably been influenced, even apart from their knowledge, by Carl Rogers. And here was his, here's kind of his theory. Here's what he thinks. All humans, all people are born naturally good. At the core, all people are good. Where does evil come from, Carl Rogers, not Brower? Where does all this evil come from? 
Evil comes from just external factors, just kind of hampering and caging in all of the goodness that we're trying to achieve. So every person is like a little flower that just wants to grow to be the biggest flower it can be and wave its stem and its petals in the sun. And everyone wants to grow to their biggest potential, that self-actualization. So without Carl Rogers, we don't get self-esteem. That's kind of where that kind of movement roots itself in Carl Rogers' teaching. So as I say this, y'all are laughing and it sounds ridiculous, but it infiltrates the church. I've heard guys say, oh yeah, I struggle with lust, but man, have you seen the way women dress? So provocative. I'm not at fault. There's this external factor that's just hampering down on my goodness of me trying to achieve my truest potential. Oh yeah, yeah, I lust, but this is how God designed me. I'm designed this way. And if God had designed me differently, lust wouldn't be a problem for me at all because at its root, minus these external factors, I'm good. Have you heard this language? No one would actually say that. But if you work it out, there's implications to this. And what we're saying is, if it weren't for something that God put in me, or if it wasn't for stuff other people do, or if it wasn't for something I inherited, if I was Adam in the garden, I wouldn't sin. I would be perfect. I'm good. I wouldn't have done that. And that's not true. That's completely counter to the biblical narrative, to what God tells us in his word. The reality is that we're the issue. We sin. We're not inherently good. Though culturally, we may say, well, everybody struggles with that. You know, there's, more, there's some sins that if we, if we commit this sin, we feel really bad about it. But we commit these other ones that everybody commits. Oh, man, try harder. That's okay. And we kind of just reason with ourselves, well, we're just doing our best. We're actually good. We're pretty good. And it's these other things that are affecting us. That's not true. Romans 3.10 through 12 says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. This is encouraging this morning, right? (laughs) Uh, Jesus says that no one is good but God alone. Says that in Luke 18, 19. Psalm 34, 8 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Okay, so we're getting the standard of goodness. God is good, God alone is good. When you're talking about humans, none of us are good. God alone is good. Psalm 16.2 says, I say to God, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. James 1.17 says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And finally, Psalm 119.68 says that you are good, meaning God. God, you are good and you do good. Teach me your statutes. Teach me your ways. Teach me your commandments essentially is what he's saying. So there's only one that's good and only one who does good, and that's God. It's none of us, okay? It's none of us. Goodness is not, as we tend to think of it, that which is worthy of our approval, but it's that which is worthy of God's approval. That is what a true definition of goodness is. So if you're following along, you have those little blanks on your notepad. Goodness is that which is worthy of God's approval, God himself is the final and the ultimate standard of goodness. There is no one gooder than God. And whatever he says is good is good, and whatever God approves is good. So, you ask, how do we learn 
about what God approves? How do we learn what goodness is? Uh, Haddon right now is in this. Haddon is my son. If you don't know me very well, he's one years old. He's really cute, very chunky. Uh, he could beat you up, but he's very cute and sweet. Uh, he's in this weird stage right now where he's testing everything. Everything is a test. And so if, imagine there's an outlet right here. He'll reach for the outlet, and then he'll turn back and look at me and Kelsey like, huh, is this okay? I'll say, no, man, don't touch that. And he'll go, oh, okay. And he'll just walk away. And he's just testing. In the same way, in uh, our backyard, we have a, I really like to play horseshoes. Um, and Haddon has little tiny horseshoes just for him. They're really cute. So we have this little horseshoe, what would you call that? Court, arena, <laughs> stadium. We have a horseshoe stadium in our backyard. <clears throat> and so uh, he will wind up to get ready to throw, and then he'll look back at me like, is this okay? And it's always okay. I'm like, yes, throw it. And then he'll throw it, he'll laugh and giggle. What Haddon's doing is he's trying to understand what gets the thumbs up from mom and dad and what gets the thumbs down. What is good and what is bad. And in the same way, we have God's word. We have his thumbs up. We have his, yes, buddy, do that. No, don't touch that. We have that in his word. And so we have to depend on his word to understand. That is where we learn what goodness is. Uh, now, why do you think we tell Haddon he can't touch electrical outlets? Why do you think we do that? It's because we just, we don't like him. Oh, man, that looks like it'd be fun for him. I hate you, Haddon. Don't, don't touch that. No, we want him to live. We don't want him to get electrocuted. We want, we want him to continue to exist, not because we're just trying to hamper on his style, but we're trying to encourage him towards life. Here's, we have to understand this. Listen closely. God is, inf God is good. That's the basis. That's the foundation. God is good. Therefore, all that he's telling us, all that he's commanding us, is so that we will have life. It's not so he can just put a cage around us and keep us from having fun. He's not trying to oppress. He's not trying to uh, make our life terrible. God is the source. He is sovereign over all things. If he is who he says he is, then goodness is only found in him, only found in his statutes. That's why the author of Psalms says, you are good and you do good, therefore teach me your statutes. Because what he's seeing is that life is only found in God. It's only, we only have life in following what God has approved. If God is good, if he truly is good and we understand that he is good, then his statutes Approving of what God approves of is where life is found. You'll notice as kids, uh, as your parents tell you to do things and you, you disobey, why do you disobey your parents? Because you don't think that their way is good. You doubt their goodness. And when you do obey, it's because you think, oh, this is probably right. This is probably good. So we have to ask ourselves this morning, do I love God's commands? Or do I believe that some uh, are more important than others? Do I feel more shame if I disobey this command, but none at all when I disobey others? What is influencing my understanding of his commands? What is influencing my understanding of his word? Do I think he's just trying to oppress me? Do I doubt that he's good, that he wants what is best? 
Or do I see that all that he approves of and everything he disapproves of, all that he approves of is where life is found and only death is found and what he disapproves of? Is that how I understand God? Do I trust and believe that he's actually good? Uh, We only disregard God's commands when we doubt his goodness. Every time you disregard a command of God, you doubt his goodness. That's what's happening. That's what's taking place. And there's no contradiction when Jesus says, I came that you might have life in abundance, but he also tells his church, commands his church to teach everyone to observe all that I have commanded you. And those, are, those work in harmony. By teaching and observing all that Christ has commanded us, we live life in abundance. That's the promise of Christ. Those aren't at odds. Those go together because God is good and all that he says is good and all that he approves of is good. So it's in our observation of all that God has commanded that we know what is good and we know that God is good. And goodness and commands go hand in hand. It is in the goodness of God that we find life. Love. Everyone's favorite, love. God is love. Okay, glory. Um, I'm just kidding. We tend to think of love as this really intense feeling of affection. That's actually how Google would define it, so trust the source, you know. We think of love as an intense feeling of affection for someone. It can also be directed at things. As I said earlier, I love brisket. Uh, But it's this intense feeling of affection, as we're talking about today, relationally. It's this feeling of affection that's given and received by individuals, given to one another and received. Um, In our culture, it really can be summed up as being nice or really kind toward people. Um, I tried to Google, like, what is love? And besides all the songs, uh, (laughs) it's really vague what our culture actually thinks love is. So it'll say, love is accepting everyone as they are. Love is never giving up on someone. Uh, again, this assumes, like Carl Rogers, that all people are good. If you accept everyone as they are, you think you've already have a presupposition that they are good and worthy of acceptance. So this infiltrates everywhere. Love is just being nice. Love is never judging so there's just a lot of weirdness and inconsistencies. The way that love tends to play out itself is very transactional. Uh, somewhat like, I'll, I'll commit to love you if you commit to love me. And that'll be love. That's, that's what will be happening. Um, our culture has this really hopeful yet jaded view of love. And this is best exemplified by Wikipedia uh, on their page about love. This is crazy. Listen to how hopeful their description of love is. No matter how much time passes by or what obstacles become present in the path of true love, love will endure. Doesn't that sound nice? But that's not where they end their statement. This is where they end it. This may be far from reality, but many find it a comforting fantasy. (laughs) Yikes. So love is just this weirdness. It's, it's never judging. It's always being nice, being kind, only exciting. Uh, and when you apply this understanding to God's love, things get really off course very quickly. Uh, I remember I was talking, uh, I was kind of teaching a class back in the day when my wife and I lived in Corpus Christi. Don't move there. It's not the best. Uh, and we were, te- I, I taught on this, uh, just kind of this class on basic New Testament theology. 
And we went through the doctrine of predestination. And I had a guy say, hey, he wrote me this nice email. Great work. I just want to talk to you a little more about predestination. I was like, great. If you don't know what predestination is, we have a sermon on Ephesians uh, 1, 3 through 10, I think, and uh, a whole theological equipping class dedicated to that. So you're like, what's predestination? I'm not going to explain it here, but you can go on your computer on our beautifully designed website and check it out. Um, But this guy said, I just want to talk more about predestination. I said, great. That would be awesome if that's actually what he wanted to do. But what he wanted to do was convince me that predestination is evil. It's not right. It's not uh, in God's word, even though it is. Uh, And here was his big argument. This is where he rested everything. You say that God predestines, that he chooses before the foundation of the earth, uh, some toward eternal life and some toward eternal condemnation. But... God is love. That doesn't sound loving. Therefore, it's not true. It can't be true. Even though in the word it says, in love he predestined. That's what it literally says in Ephesians. So we're both using this word love, just like brisket, but we're talking about two completely unrelated things. One his definition actually submits, it tries to submit God to the definition of men, to the standard of men. And what we're searching for is we want to submit men, we want to submit ourselves to God's standard, the way that he has revealed himself. So I'll say that God is perfectly loving, and his word tells us that a prime example of love is actually his predestination of believers. So what should we mean when we say that God is loving? Uh, This is my little definition. God's God's love is God's covenantal commitment to offer himself and his goodness, to offer himself and his goodness. John, 1 John 4.10 says, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Uh, Jesus says, no greater love is there than this, that one would lay down his life for his friends. Uh, in Matthew 5, Jesus says, you've heard it said, you heard that it was said, you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. So what he says is, you ought to love your enemies so that you may resemble the likeness of your father. Haddon has, my son has the same eating habits as me, he has some of the same mannerisms. I, you know, if you see me walk, I kind of walk like this. Uh, that's a joke. <clears throat> and uh, he resembles me because he's my son. And in the same way, when we look at God's love, God's love looks like loving his enemies, offering his goodness, though they don't deserve it, to them. And so he says that we ought to resemble our father so we could be sons of our father who is in heaven. For God makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Tax collectors meaning scum of the earth. That's what he's saying. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What he's saying is God's love... Everybody loves someone when there's something in it for them, of course. That makes sense. When there's some sort of mutuality. Only God is one who offers uh, himself to those who hate him. 
And not only does he offer, but he enters into a covenant that he'll never break because we learned a few weeks ago that God is unchanging. So if he's covenanted to love someone, if he's predestined a believer, then he is covenanted to never leave or forsake them, to always love them. His commitment does not change either, his commitment to love. So how can we relate, how can we share in this attribute? Uh, We can imitate this love by doing what the scriptures call us to do. Uh, Here's 1 John 4 again. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. See how it's talking about us sharing in that. We also ought to love one another in the same way that God has loved us. So we behold and we marvel at God's love and that what, all that he has shown us and we reflect God's love by treating others as God has treated us and treating them uh, whether or not they are nice to us in return. We reject culture's understanding of I'll love you if you love me back. And we just remember the gospel, remember how we have been loved. While we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly and that's everyone who would claim Christ. You were ungodly, you were full of sin. The only thing you brought to the table was sin. You brought nothing else. And so sometimes what happens is we get this, this understanding of God's love distorted in our mind. We think uh, if we're sinning more this one day, that God's real disappointed and he loves us less. But while you're at your worst, Christ died for the weak. He died for the ungodly. And so you see our understanding of God's love easily gets corrupted when we begin to try to force, when we try to submit God to our own standard. So we have to constantly renew our minds to the standard that he he gives. So don't think uh, that God loves you so long as you love him. Uh, Romans says that nothing can even separate you from the love of God, no created thing. And you're a created thing, so not even yourself can separate you from the love of God. That's a bit of a leap, but I think that it's supported by scripture elsewhere. God is committed to you, believer, that the love with which he loves Christ is yours in Christ forever. So be comforted. When you feel distant from God, it's not, you're not. It's an illusion. God is committed to love you and that love is unchanging. So be encouraged. I gotta keep going. Uh, Glory, God's glory. We tend to think of glory as someone walking in the room and like hearing trumpets playing or French horns playing if you're Carl, that's his dream. Out of all of our definitions today, uh, our cultural understanding of glory comes probably the closest to the biblical understanding. It's still a long way off, but it probably comes the closest. I would argue that this idea of glory is closely linked to our understanding of holiness. And so God is so Glorious, he has so much glory as a result of his holiness. So let me give you kind of a, an illustration of this. Uh, I went to Texas A&M University, whoop, uh, and a couple years ago, I'm just, I've, I'm okay. Our season's gonna be rough, and that's okay. We're just not gonna have a good football season, and that's okay. But a couple years ago, we had this quarterback named Johnny Manziel. People called him Johnny Football. Everybody loved him. And, you know, he started out, he was like a, I think he was red-shirted as a freshman. If you don't know anything about football, what that means, ignore it. I'll get to it. Uh, 
he started out just kind of sitting on the bench, and then he started playing, and people saw all of his achievements, and they started to say, wow, this guy's really good. He would do really crazy things. People said he looked like someone was playing a video game, and someone had like all of the stats really high because he was faster than everybody. He'd run around the field really crazy. Everyone loved him. And then he became the first freshman in college football history to win the Heisman Trophy, which means all of your peers uh, or all of these legends think that you're the greatest. They think you're the greatest college football player that year. So he won the Heisman, the first freshman ever. And it was like, oh my goodness, Johnny, Johnny Manziel, Johnny football is amazing. And then he went off to the NFL. But the whole time, uh, as his uniqueness, as his set-apartness, as his holiness grew, there was this little uh, glimmer. We kept seeing like weird photos from parties or he'd say something in an interview that was kind of like, uh, and he would do something. He wouldn't show up for a practice uh, all of these crazy things kept happening and that kind of diminished his holiness and as a result his glory kind of disappeared and dissipated he had a terrible time in the NFL didn't have a lot of success he's not in the NFL anymore and now he's back at school studying and no one talks about him his glory is diminished because glory is correlated to holiness so the more unique he was you've seen this happen with a lot of people Lance Armstrong Whoever, the more unique they are, and everyone's like, wow, they're the greatest, and everybody's talking about them. As soon as that holiness is cut in any way, the glory disappears. Have you experienced this? Have you seen this? This means yes. Great. So God is holy to the highest degree. There's no one holier than God. He's holy to the highest degree. Therefore, he's worthy of highest glory, and he's unchanging. So he will always be worthy of highest glory. My definition of God's glory is it's his splendorous and honorable reputation which brilliantly radiates from himself. God's splendorous and honorable reputation which brilliantly radiates from himself. There, there are really two parts of this definition. Uh, first, God's glory has to do with his, his honor and his reputation and all that goes with it. So as a result of his holiness, God's glory his reputation is incomparable. If he is who he says he is, he is all these things, he's omnipotent, he is impassable, he is wrathful but also jealous and gracious, all these things, then he has the greatest glory. He has this reputation that is incomparable. Therefore, Isaiah 6.3 says, holy, 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 holy cubed is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So you see that link? He is holy, he is holy, he is holy. There's none like him. The whole world is full of his glory. Isaiah 43, 7 says that we were created, this is our purpose, for God's glory. Our purpose is to participate in this magnification and honor of his excellent standard and reputation. But there's, there's a problem, there's an issue. Romans 3, 23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And here's the best way I can describe this. Falling short of the glory, whenever you have a celebrity that says something dumb, they have like a TV show, and then all of their commercial sponsors start pulling away, and they're not gonna support them anymore, it's because they have failed to magnify and make that company look glorious. They have failed to properly conform to the standard of that company. So the company's like, no, we're not with them. And that's what we've done. We have failed to comply, we have failed to submit to the glorious standard, and we have failed to magnify 
God's glorious standard. We fail to magnify and respect and not rebel against his reputation. We've all missed the mark when it comes to magnifying God's glory. The second part of this definition is that God's glory is something in and of itself which radiates from him. Kind of like rays radiating from the sun. We've kind of talked about this. So whenever, somewhat glory is a weird attribute because it's not really a part of God, but wherever he is, there it is. It's this created thing that whenever he manifests, there it is. So it's kind of a weird attribute, but hey, we're still working through it. Uh, Luke 2.9 says, an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. Glory usually has this, um, this, it's, it's like shininess or brilliance or light. That's usually how glory is described or understood in the Bible. Uh, Revelation 21.23 says that the city of Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. So with all that in mind, how are we supposed to share in or, or imitate God's glory? How is this actually shared with us? Uh, I would say, just like we've talked about, uh, the sun is this heat, but the rays give you a taste of what that sun's fullness is like. So when we, when we go outside, if you go outside for a long time, you're gonna get sunburned, probably. Have you felt the full power of the sun? Not even close. But you do have an understanding based off of its rays, you say, that thing is probably really hot. It's very hot. And this is just a taste. But man, that thing is crazy hot. Second Corinthians 3 says, as we behold the glory of the Lord, we are changed. Second Corinthians 3.18 says that. So as we behold God's glory, we are changed, conformed to the image of Christ. As we behold God's glory, we're we're sanctified and made more and more like him. So as I used to work uh, right out of college, I mowed lawns. I was using my liberal arts degree well. And uh, I spent a lot of time in the sun, so my skin was really dark. My clothes were all faded. And it was because I had spent time in the sun. And when you spend time in the sun, you are changed. You are affected. As we behold God's glory, we are changed. So when we, this happens by the Spirit's enabling, as we come together to, to worship on Sunday mornings, as we come together to study theology and learn about who God is and how he's revealed himself, when we do that in here, when we pray, when we confess to one another and like community groups, when we gather in those ways, all of these are methods and, and, and ways in which we behold God's glory. It's like those weird, no one probably uses this anymore because of the, the cancer, but <laughs> those reflector things that people used to tan with, I don't know what those are called. They probably have a name, but they're probably really unsafe. But what that's meant to do, imagine God is non-cancer, okay? We want to reflect and we want to just behold in all of his glory. And those things that we do, especially here on Sunday mornings, those are ways in which we can do that. We can just behold all of his glory. And as we behold his glory, we are transformed. We are conformed to the image of the Son. So we have to ask ourselves often, are you being changed? Second Corinthians says, as we behold God's glory, we are changed. Are you being changed? If you are being changed, that's great. Praise the Spirit. But if you're not being changed, 
then you might not be beholding God's glory for all that it is. You might have a false understanding of who God is and what his glory looks like. Are you beholding some watered-down version of glory? Are you, are, you, are you taking all the aspects of God that you really like, you're saying, I like these, but the ones that are offensive or are maybe difficult for you, you just kind of put those to the side. Watered-down water understanding of God's glory will never change anyone, and sometimes we would prefer that. Don't change my life. Don't, don't make me submit to an authority I don't want to submit to. I'll take the watered-down gospel. I'll take the watered-down Bible. I'll, I'll neglect uh, the gathering. I'll neglect the word. I'll neglect prayer. I'd rather not. I don't want to have to change. I don't want to be changed. If we behold God's glory, if we are beholding God's glory, we are changed 100% of the time. So ask yourself, am I being changed? Am I being conformed into the image of Christ, the image of Christ, Christ who is the image of the invisible God? This is how we share in God's glory. We become like him. Freedom. So glory is where our, close, our, our, our culture gets like the closest to the definition. Freedom is probably where our culture is the furthest off by a long shot. Uh, you have to know that we as Americans, we have this really crazy, radical understanding of freedom that almost no one else shares. This is how uh, Google, my good friends over there, define freedom. Freedom is the power or right to act, speak, or think as one wants without hindrance or constraint. Freedom is the power or the right to act, speak, or think as one wants without hindrance or restraint. So Amazon fuels this feeling of freedom. Uh, I want it to my house, I want it in an hour. Kelsey and I used to live down the street from a fulfillment center. We'd get stuff to our house in 20 minutes. Order it on Amazon, it's there, which was crazy. Uh, there's this old drink that, it was called Surge. Anybody remember Surge? Yeah. Yes. It tasted like green, and it was just weird. It was a Coke's response to Mountain Dew. It did not do well. It failed. You can buy Surge on Amazon. Nothing stands in your way. Nothing constrains you. You can get whatever you want. This is kind of our understanding of freedom. But let me ask you, if, if, you, are, if you have the right or power to act or think or speak in whatever way you want, and there's no restraint, no limit, is that freedom? Are you actually free? If no one restrains you, you, are, you can do whatever you want. Are you actually free? Your smiles tell me that you don't want to answer because you know I'm about to give you the answer. So I'll do that. Imagine that somehow you are personally, that you are free and you have the power and right to act and speak and think as you want without hindrance, no restraint. You're not free. Because if you had the ability to act or speak or think as you want without any hindrance, you would, with your freedom, choose to enslave yourself to sin. You would always do that. You will always choose to enslave yourself to sin. That's what you want. If you're free to do whatever you want, that's what you want. You want to enslave yourself to sin. If you can do whatever you want, do you choose to serve God? Is that what your choice is? None of us would. And, and none of us could. This is what Romans 6, 15 says through 18. 
What then, are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you are committed. Having been set free from sin, you are set free from sin. All of us are born slaves to sin. And that's in our freedom, that's all we want, to be slaves to sin. We're set free from that and have become slaves of righteousness. This is true freedom. You're either enslaved by sin or by God. If you are not God, then you are not free. Only God is free. He is the only free being. Jeff mentioned this a few weeks ago. Uh, You could not choose to not sin because true freedom is the ability to never sin. And that's something none of us are capable of apart from the spirit, the spirit being God. Only God is free. Therefore, God's freedom is God's ability to do whatever he pleases. God's ability to do whatever he pleases. Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. As we discussed two weeks ago, what he pleases is limited by his will and by his nature. So can God sin? No, he cannot. Can God tell a lie? Can God tempt? Can he be tempted? Can he deceive? So he's limited by his will, by his nature. He does only what he pleases. And all that he pleases is good, as we discuss. All that God approves of is goodness. So he's limited. So uh, freedom for us looks like being enslaved to righteousness or being enslaved to God. That is true freedom. So submitting to his authority, to his will, to his word, that's freedom for us. And our culture's conception of freedom is completely contrary to true freedom. True freedom is this term that Augustine kind of uses a lot, um, being completely free from sin in that we only do what God, please, what God wants us to do. So this morning, uh, we, we share in this communicable attribute insofar as we do whatever God pleases. This is, in fact, our eschatological hope. In the end, for eternity, we will not... We will only want to do what God wants us to do. And that will be true freedom, to eternally be slaves to God. That's our hope. We will not have this, uh, we will not be able to sin. We'll be slaves to righteousness. So ask yourself, do you believe that true freedom looks like submitting to God perfectly? Is that your idea of true freedom? Submitting to God perfectly. That's our hope that one day we'll be made like that. Christ will, in the end, put to death sin and death, and we will only submit to God perfectly. Have you been enslaving yourself to sin in pursuit of freedom? Are you pursuing something other than what God has approved of? Enslaving yourself further and calling it freedom? And finally, uh, that leads us to perfection. Perfection. So we tend to think of perfection as being uh, without error or free from blemish. 
And that's pretty close. So like if it's 70 degrees outside and we have a picnic and you and your wife aren't in a fight and uh, your kids are obeying you perfectly and you find a pile of money, <laughs> that's a perfect day. You're like, man, today was great. It was amazing. So it's this thing where nothing bad happened. Everything was awesome. But God's perfection is even greater. It's greater still. Uh, here's how I'll define it. God's Perfection is his possession of all desirable qualities to the highest degree. And this is a bit redundant, but while also possessing nothing undesirable. So he has all of the desirable attributes and he possesses nothing undesirable. It's redundant, but it matters. Scripture says things like, uh, God is light, in him there is no doctrine. Darkness is no doctrine, ye. Yikes. In him there is no darkness. So perfect in the biblical sense kind of carries this idea of completeness. Uh, in Numbers, there's this, this is going to sound really boring. Well, why did I set myself up for failure? Anyways, uh, in Numbers, uh, God kind of gives uh, Israel this method of purification of uncleanliness, okay? So when a person is unclean, uh, basically, the whole, all the priests, they gather and they get this red heifer, a red cow, has to be completely red. It means perfect is the word that's used, perfectly red. And they burn it and they take the ashes. And if someone is unclean, they can put the ash on their forehead and they will be made pure. They'll be purified from their uncleanliness, okay? It's a random example. There's these like legends of uh, these like historical books um, in Judaism that talk about these like priests searching through the red heifer and like looking through all the hairs and finding like two white hairs and being like, oh no, no purification. God, we can look at him very closely as we comb through every single aspect of God, every single attribute, we find nothing that is imperfect. We find only perfection. We don't find gray hairs. We find only goodness. Only perfection. This is kind of like, in the way that holiness, all of these are holy attributes. God is absolutely perfect in all of his attributes as well. He is holy, H-O-L-Y, and W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy, perfect. There's no one like God. No one compares. And we will never be able to actually fathom or grasp God all of his qualities. But as we do, as we do study them, as we think about them, as he reveals himself, as we read God's word, we will only find perfection. We will find no blemish. If we do find a blemish, it is not of God. It is sin. We see him dimly from this perspective, but one day we will see him face to face for eternity. There's no fear. We don't have to be afraid that there's some hidden darkness that we'll study God and we, we think, wow, he's really great. And then we'll find something and be like, oh man, what have I dedicated my life to? We don't, that, that's not a risk. He is perfect throughout. So ask yourself this morning, do I believe that God is really perfect? Do I believe that there is nothing undesirable about God? This is a hard one for us. There's a lot that we think that is undesirable about God. Are there aspects of God that you're embarrassed about that you think are offensive? Do you think that you could think up a better way for God to be than how he has revealed himself? Think, man, God's really great, but if he was just a little more, he'd be really great. You doubt his perfection. 
Psalm 18.30 says that God's way is perfect. And in the like, does the way that you spend your time and money and energy reflect a belief that you think God's way is perfect? Or do you think that your way is more perfect? Do you think you have a better way of doing things than God? Do you think your way is perfecter? Do you think that you have to kind of maneuver and strategize and twist your way into finding joy or satisfaction because you don't think God is for your good? You don't think that he's actually... uh, the source of all perfect goodness and love and glory and freedom? Do you think you have to just kind of manipulate your own way of of getting what you really desire, not recognizing that he is the sum of all desirable attributes? God is perfect. When you combine all that we've talked about in the past four weeks, when you combine all of those together, all of God's attributes, even those that we haven't mentioned, uh, there's billions, trillions that we haven't mentioned, but they all illustrate a God who is holy and a God that is perfect. So if you walk away with anything, know that God, there is no darkness. In him, there is only light, and that he is holy. He, though we cannot completely fathom or grasp or understand him, that he condescends, speaks our language, talks to us in ways that we understand so that we may know him and understand him. So now that he's done that, given us his word, what are we gonna do with it? I pray that we would trust his perfection. Trust that he really is who he says he is. Trust and obey him, uh, even when it's really difficult. Okay, I'm gonna pray for us and then we're gonna do a little Q&A. So Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your love, uh, your glory. We thank you for uh, the fact that you are wholly free. And we thank you for the reality of your perfection. I pray that we would trust that you are good. And in the places that we doubt, I pray that you would grow us. I pray that you would grow us in our love and our knowledge of you, knowledge of your gospel. And when we find that uh, it's hard for us to fathom you in a way that is desirable, I pray that we would recognize that uh, we are in error. There is no error in you. You are only good. You are only true. And you are holy. I pray that we would... Res- we would uh, treat you as such, that we would uh, submit ourselves to your word, and we would humbly approach your throne. Thank you that you are a God who empowers us to do that, desires us to do that. You're a good father, and you give good gifts. Only you are good. We praise you for this. We thank you for the gift of your son, for redeeming us, us who are enemies. Uh, I pray that we would be encouraged this morning. Uh, it's in the name of Christ we pray, amen.